be in um, a really in a really familiar uh, passage, probably for many of us. For many of you in this room, for some of you in this room, I've walked through the passage that we're going to be in over the next couple of weeks. This portion of scripture, um, we, we've done this together before, and so it's going to be kind of like revisiting an old friend for uh, for some of us. If this is going to be your first experience with the passages that we're going to be walking through over the next couple of weeks, man, you're in for a total treat. Um, and I would encourage you to uh, do a, a more in-depth study of what we're going to be discussing uh, on your on your own time, in your own time, because we're going to be covering some ground over the next couple of weeks. And so we won't be able to get everything. There's going to be a lot of things that uh, we look at and we go, hey, if we were to continue on, these are the things that we're going to see Jesus talking about. Um, and so maybe set some time aside to, uh, to explore the rest of what we're not going to be able to discuss over the next couple of weeks together. Um, in this season, there are a lot of really solid resources. We're highlighting one of them as a church um, back there on our pegboard that you can you can take a look at as you leave. Um, I would recommend another one that we're actually going to read from tonight at our family meeting, um, and it is a an Advent devotional by Paul David Tripp. Come let us adore him. It's incredible. Today's the third day um, going through, bless you, uh, going through this. And so um, it's been a treat, and we're going to go through it together tonight um, at family meeting. And so uh, come let us adore him. A ton of solid resources that are available this time of year um, and this season that I would encourage you to, uh, to take advantage of. You know, I love the way that, uh, that John Piper uh, – introduces the season of Advent, he really puts it on an under an understandable level for us, okay? I know it is for me. Um, I remember one time when I was a, a kid, um, I, I don't know how you were as children, but I was oftentimes all over the place in stores, right? Um, and I was kind of working the aisles, and I was all over the place and would kind of disappear and then find my way back and hide under things and in things, right? It was a real, it was a real joy. It was a real treat to go to the store uh, with me as a child. But he, he talks about uh, he talks about the, the feeling of becoming lost in a situation such as that as a child and then happening upon your uh, your parents. Yesterday, Courtney and I were standing in line at Macy's at Lennox to ride the pink pig with Judah. Anybody done the pink pig before? Anybody? Like, seriously, a few of you guys? Okay. Yeah, it's legit, right? And uh, you can go do it. You don't have to have children, although I don't know how that's going to work out. But uh, you put it on your list to kind of do when you have kids, right? Yesterday, we were standing in line to do the pink pig, and there was a a couple in front of us with a little boy who, uh, in the midst of standing in line, got a little bit lost, right? Like on, like, where where the people that I know are in the midst of all these people that I do not know. And he started to, like, freak out. Out a little bit and like work his way through the crowd like frantically I mean he was a, a little boy like he wasn't old at all uh, and then as you see those who are in charge of him like chasing after him like come here don't be afraid and they scoop him up and they they let him know after his brief freak out session that everything was going to be okay that they had not left him that they had not abandoned him but that they were there uh, to, uh, to to keep him and to in his mind rescue him right because for that brief moment uh, he was he was like dead, right? It was all over. Like, this is it. Uh, And so this is what Piper has to say about the season of Advent for God's people. He he compares it again with with becoming lost in a store, becoming lost in a store, a grocery store. And as you're lost, you begin to get scared, 
and panic. You don't know which way to go. And so you run to the end of the aisle. And, and as you get there, you find that there's no hope to be found. And so you run to the end of the next aisle and you get there and you find that there's no hope to be found. And then finally, just before you start to totally lose it and weep and cry everywhere, embarrassingly cry, right? Like moaning, crying, you see at the end of an aisle, a shadow on the floor that looks just like mom. And so you, you become, in that moment, really happy, right? And you feel hope. But the question that is posed by Piper at the end of this illustration is this. Which is actually better, the happiness of seeing the shadow or having your mom step around the corner and it's really her, right? Because we're only adding to the terror if you see the shadow and then out from behind the curtain steps someone who is not your rescuer, right? And so what is better, Piper asks, is, is, is it better to see the shadow and to have that in, initial hope and, and, and happiness and feeling of, of, of joy? Or is it better to see mom step around the corner and it is actually her? He says this, this is the way it is when Jesus comes to be our high priest. This is what Christmas uh, is, is, uh, is about, right? This is what Christmas is. Christmas is the replacement of shadows with the real thing. And so over the next four weeks, we're going to unpack four themes, the theme of, of hope, peace, love, and joy. And we're going to do so through what is arguably the most well-known sermon ever Delivered, and that is Jesus' Sermon on the Mount in Matthew chapter 5, 6, and 7. And so if you have a Bible, open up with us to, uh, to Matthew chapter 5. That's where we're going to be uh, this morning. And as we approach this passage, it's helpful to understand contextually what's going on. What's going on in, in Matthew 5? We're aware of, for those of us who have been together for some time, what's going on in Mark chapter 11, right? We've reviewed and revisited visited context every week since we launched on January 1st of this past year. But as we come into, parachute into Matthew chapter 5 and Jesus' Sermon on the Mount, it is helpful to know a little bit of contextual information. One of those things would be this. Who is Jesus talking to? Who is he addressing in Matthew chapters 5, 6, and 7 in his Sermon on the Mount? And if we do a little bit of research, which I have, so I'll help you guys out in that area. Nobody needs to Google what's going on in Matthew chapter 5 at this point, right? We see that it's actually a, a, a mixed crowd, that there are, uh, there are those among Jesus' followers who are present. But based on something that we're going to read later on in Matthew's account, it would seem as though there are also a number of individuals that are a part of the crowd. There is this, this awe-inspiring response to the teaching of Jesus that helps us to, to maybe put some of those crowds within the within the smaller context of what Jesus is doing in Matthew chapter in Matthew chapter 5 but as Jesus is speaking he's speaking ultimately toward and about the transformed life 
Right? He's saying essentially, this is what it looks like, and, and this is what I look like. When you think about and you consider the transformed life and what it looks like to live as a follower of Jesus, considering the promises that have been placed before us, as well as gospel impact on daily living, we get a great picture of that in the Sermon on the Mount. We start to understand a little bit more clearly what that looks like. But in and through this, as we always seek to do, there is also this this display of the character of God. And so we're going to spend a little bit of time discussing that this morning as we begin this season together of Advent. You guys cool with that? Everybody good? Awesome. Well, since everyone's so swell, I'll continue on. Matthew chapter 5, beginning in verse 1, and we're going to read through verse 12. This is going to be the primary passage that we're going to be in this morning. Although, as I already prefaced in the beginning, the rest of Matthew chapter 5 is, is really stellar as well. Okay, and so I would encourage you to, um, to read that which we are going to reference uh, in our time this morning in your time at home. And so let's look together at Matthew chapter 5, beginning in verse 1 and working through verse 12. This is, uh, this is the word of the Lord. Beginning in verse 1. Seeing the crowds, he went up on the mountain. And when he, he being Jesus, sat down, his disciples came to him. Verse 2. And he opened his mouth and taught them, saying... Now, now, what we're going to read in verses 3 through 11, I mean, these things are incredible, right? As we begin looking at and expositing the hope that is found in Christ, the hope that God provides this morning, I mean, we could not go to a better passage than what we see uh, from Jesus in verses 3 through 12 as he speaks towards the blessedness of God's people, right? In light of who Christ is and in light of what he was to accomplish for his people, right? This is what we need to understand. This is what we're going to see. We're going to spend some time unpacking this morning. And so look with me at verse three, Jesus says, as he begins to teach, blessed are the poor in spirit for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek for they, Jesus says, shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. For they shall be satisfied. And so satisfaction, Jesus says in verse 6, this is commentary as we're going because it's just so good, right? Is, is found in Christ, right? Satisfaction is found in Christ. That's what we're going to see Jesus unpacking for us. Verse 7, blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad. For your reward is great in heaven, for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. 
Hey, let's pray together. Father, we are so grateful this morning again for your word and for the, the, the preservation of it. We pray that as we begin this Advent season as a fellowship, that we might indeed be confronted with the hope that is found in Christ and in Christ alone, the hope that you have provided through your son and his sacrificial substitution for sinners in our place at Calvary, that there is forgiveness that's found and it's found through the blood of Christ. And so we pray this morning that as we, as we approach these truths, that we might understand what true blessedness is uh, and how your people are blessed, not because of any inerrant righteousness of our own, but because of the righteousness of Jesus, the one who, who has come into the world and lived the perfect life, the life that we ought to have lived and died the death that we were deserving of. And in doing so, by faith, entrance into the kingdom is made possible, is made available. We celebrate these truths and the hope of the gospel again this morning, even now. And it's in the name of Jesus that we pray. Amen. Amen. Men. And so this morning, there are two passages, two points that we're going to draw out from this passage. And uh, Logan's going to hit us with those so we can get an idea of, what is, of what's coming. Right? As we unpack the hope that God provides, we're going to see two specific points from this passage that we're going to discuss more in depth. But there is one singular point. There's one overarching theme that we want to understand that the remainder of this passage in the context of, and that is this, that Jesus receives sinners, right? That Jesus receives sinners and he speaks the hope of God's grace into the human heart, right? If we were to think of a 30,000 foot, like main idea of what we're going to see in verses one through 12, it would be that, that Jesus receives sinners and he speaks the hope of God's grace into the human heart. Two smaller points, subpoints that we'll be discussing this morning from that is that we can approach God because God makes himself approachable in Christ. Now that is a drastically different position and a drastically different posture than, than what we are due, right? Than what naturally takes place. And we'll talk more about that. The second is this, that Jesus speaks the hope of salvific grace into the hearts of his hearers. And that's exactly what we see in verses two through 12, this section of the Sermon on the Mount that's oftentimes referred to as the Beatitudes. And so we're going to tackle the Beatitudes in one large section this morning after we seek to understand more clearly how we might approach God uh, through Christ, the grace of God, making himself approachable in Christ Jesus. Look, at, look with me at verse 5 as we begin our time. Chapter 5, verse 1, I'm sorry. Chapter 5, verse 1 says this, Seeing the crowds, he, again, Jesus, went up on the mountain, and when he sat down, his disciples came to him. Now, a, a foundational element of the Sermon on the Mount is the exposition of God's character that we see unpacked over these 12 verses. And so let's begin by starting there, right? Let's start by seeking to understand the exposition of God's character, even as we see it in verse 1. Let's consider what we know about God, okay? God's Grace and his desire to be worshipped serve as the catalyst for creation. 
right? When we go back to Genesis chapter 1 and we consider all that is there in Genesis chapter 1 and in Genesis chapter 2, we discussed this at membership last week. And for those who went through membership last time, we discussed it there, that God's grace and his desire to be worshipped serve as the catalyst for creation of anything, right? Anything exists as opposed to nothing because God is gracious and God is Caring, right? Everything, creation itself, all that we observe in this room around us this morning and in the mirror, right, exists because of who God is. God's grace and his desire to be worshipped serve as the catalyst, right, that which moves creation forward. In addition, we can say this, that his grace and his desire to be worshipped serve as the catalyst for redeeming his people. And so God creates. Why? Well, he creates because he is gracious. He is not lonely, right? He is not hoping for something more, but out of an overflow of who he is, he decides to make something as opposed to nothing, but he and himself, everything that is ever really needed, right, continuing to exist. On its, on its own. In addition to that, we see that God's grace and his desire to be worshipped serves as a catalyst for the redemption of a people. Why does God rescue? Well, the, for the same reason that he creates, because he is gracious and he desires to be worshipped. We get a look in Genesis chapter 3 of the means by which God would redeem his people. And it is through the seed, the hope of Christ. If we continue on through the, the story of God that's laid out on the, on the pages of the Old Testament, we see later on that through the tabernacle, God takes up residence among his people as his presence serves as a source of comfort for them. And so God creates out of an overflow of his character and a desire to be worshipped. God redeems out of an overflow of his character and a desire to be worshipped. And then in the midst of all of this, God dwells. He takes up residence among his people as his presence serves as a source of comfort for them, a people who had been enslaved and oppressed and treated poorly for hundreds of years. God rescues them out of that, and then he resides among them. This is just a small glimpse at the much bigger redemptive narrative that's unfolding on the pages of the New Testament because through the work of the seed, the hope presented in Genesis chapter 3, we see that God would move from taking up residence among his people to taking up residence in his people. And so as we consider Old Testament, New Testament narrative and see the plan of redemption continue to unfold, it's helpful to consider that. Insert Matthew chapter 1. Right, in which we see the immaculate conception and the incarnation of Jesus, a miracle in and of itself and the character witness of our God. I love what Joseph Schumann has to say of the importance of the incarnation and what it teaches us about God. As we approach the Sermon on the Mount, the Beatitudes here in Matthew chapter 5, we must do so on the backdrop of the incarnation of Christ. Right, the, the immaculate conception. Listen to, what, listen to what Joseph Schumann has to say about 
the incarnation and what it teaches us about God. He says, we see the greatness of God through the incarnation. Our God is the eternal God who was born in a stable, not a distant or withdrawn God. Our God is a humble, giving God, not a selfish, grabbing God. Our God is purposeful and and planning, not random or reactionary. Now, Now, why is that so important? Well, because we consider the whole of the redemptive narrative and we understand that that Christ's entrance into the world and his subsequent death upon the cross, having lived a perfect life in perfect obedience to the plan of God, to the purpose of God, to the law of God, is not an audible at the line. Right, But that it's God's plan before the foundations of the world. When we consider Christmas, let us know and comprehend and understand and rest in that it is God's providential plan unfolding. Our God is a God who is far above us and whose ways are not our ways. He's not a God we can put in a box and control. Our God is a God who redeems us, and he does so yet again with the cross remaining central by his blood. He's not a God who leaves us in our sins. Our God is great. Our God is great indeed. And so we see the character of God. And then we understand it, right, upon the backdrop of our own fallen and sinful condition. To be human, newsflash, to be human is to be fallen. It is to be sinful. To be human is to, apart from God's compassionate intervention, dwell in broken fellowship with him. There is no right relationship with God in and of ourselves. And so we exist in broken fellowship with God as a result of the natural human condition, and we exist in broken fellowship with each other. Sin makes the relationships that we enjoy today together a perversion of what God desires and designed it to be. Let me say that one more time. As we consider sin's effect on our relationship, both with God and with others, we see that we are alienated, that we are alienated from God. And at the fellowship that we enjoy, the relationships that we enjoy with one another today are a perversion of what God desires and designed them to be apart from gospel intervention. And this speaks across the spectrum. Our friendships, Right? Our, our marriages, father-son relationships, and mother-daughter relationships, apart from gospel redemption, right? And, and God's intent being lived out among a people are broken. They're in need of being redeemed, right? Our relationships with God and with one another are in need of being redeemed. At the same time, the gospel, the immaculate conception and the incarnation, right? The introduction to the Sermon on the Mount says what? Well, it says chapter five, verse one, that God receives sinners. 
that God receives sinners. Our great God receives sinners. He welcomes sinners and he sits with sinners for the purpose. Now, this is incredibly important. He welcomes sinners and he sits with sinners. We see throughout the New Testament and in the the earthly ministry of Jesus in particular, fellowship with sinners, right? For a purpose. And that purpose is transformation. That purpose is salvation. That purpose is a displaying of his glory. Timothy Keller says it beautifully when he says this. That God loves us right where we are, but he loves us too much to leave us there. And so we see God sitting with sinners on a mountain as we begin the Sermon on the Mount. We get a glimpse of all of this manifesting itself on the side of a hill as Jesus delivers perhaps his most well-known public address. And in this and through this, God displays his redemption of these relationships in a way that only he is capable of doing. What does Jesus do? Well, he, he invites and he calls us back into fellowship with himself. Now, this is incredible because I want us to consider the exposition of God that we've already explored in our time together today. Right, God, our God, the living God, the creator and sustainer of all things who dwells in unapproachable light, makes himself approachable through the Son. He he calls his sheep, and the Bible says that his sheep hear his voice, the voice of the shepherd, and they come. This is the language that John uses in his gospel account. He, He changes our relationships. Jesus makes himself available, and what happens? People are drawn to him. They're drawn to him. That's just verse 1. And so what do, we, what do we see as we consider our approaching of God because God has made himself approachable in Christ? We can say this with complete confidence that there is hope, that there's hope in the midst of hopelessness and there's hope in the midst of helplessness because Christ is willing not only to sit with sinners, but let's consider the entire redemptive narrative. He doesn't simply sit with sinners, but he stands in the place of sinners. We cannot consider the incarnation and the immaculate conception, God's entrance into the world, his condescension, right, to to exist, right, among broken people. In a human form, in a human condition, we cannot consider those things apart from looking all the more at the cross, right? There's hope in the midst of hopelessness and and helplessness because Christ is willing not only to sit with sinners, but to stand in the place of sinners. What Jesus is going to, to say to this group of broken and hurting and desperate and hopeless and helpless people, man, that is why we begin the Beatitudes this morning as we consider the hope of Christ this Advent season. Right, Because if you step back, and I'm all about tones, like I love to consider tone and, and sphere and like location as we read through the Bible. Consider what Jesus is, is observing before him on the side of this mountain, right? Like, like broken people, 
Like, dirty people, desperate people in need of far more than they can even begin to imagine in this, at this particular point in this particular season, right? Like, they could make a laundry list of needs, and their greatest need might not even be among them. And yet Jesus speaks grace and, and hope and compassion into the midst of, of the crowd. It is truly incredible what we see taking place here as we begin the Beatitudes and the Sermon on the Mount. And so we see that we can approach God. We can only approach God because God has made himself approachable in Christ. And so step back again and let's bring it home to 2017. That you and I, sinners, broken, rebels, right, distant from God, separate from him, warring against him. He, as the object of all of our hate, right, are able to, by transformed hearts and faith, approach him in Christ. Wow. Like, that's, that's, this is the adoption theme that we see laid out on the pages of, of Scripture. It gives way to gratitude, doesn't it? Right? It gives way to, to, to worship and appreciation. It gives way to, um, to, to I mean, we're going to, as we conclude our time here, we're going to sing again. And we say, well, how do, as God's people, how do we sing? How do we approach God? Like, well, as we're saying these words, not simply to ceiling tiles or to one another, but to him, what is the catalyst? What's the transforming factor behind the way that we offer our voices to God? It's this. It's this, that he offers his son so that we might offer our voices to him, right? So we might offer our lives to him. We've got to go on. We've got to go on. Point two. Here we go. Verses two through 11. Jesus speaks the hope of salvific grace into the hearts of his hearers. Let's look beginning in verse 2 and reading through this time verse 11. And then we're going to go back and we're going to talk about some of these things. And he, so they've come to him. They're before him. That's what we see in verse uh, verses 1. It's in verse 2, he begins, he opens his mouth and he teaches them saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be what? Comforted. Right? Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be what? Satisfied. And blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake. For theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. For those of you who went through the Sermon on the Mount with me a few years ago, you're saying, wow, it took us about six weeks to get through these verses. How in the world are we going to do all these together this morning? Have faith, confidence. Here we go. The Beatitudes are meant to be shared as a unit. Okay, you can break them down and we could literally spend 45 minutes talking through what it means to be poor in spirit and how the kingdom of heaven belongs to those, right? But we're going to take this thing as a big unit. They have bookends in verses 3 and verse 10. And so if you make notes in your Bible or you make notes on paper, like that's a, that's a helpful point to understand as we begin to be attitudes. That they are meant to be shared as a unit and that they have bookends in verse 3 and verse 10 that focus on the kingdom and those who shall possess it and what those people look like. Jesus begins and he ends the Beatitudes with a promise. 
Look with me at verse 3. He says in verse 3, blessed are the what? The poor in spirit, right? For theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Essentially, Jesus saying, blessed are those who understand their need for mercy. Right? Blessed are those who understand their spiritual bankruptcy. And so let's step away for a minute and let's say, are we occupying that position? Right? Do we corporately, individually understand our brokenness? Do we understand our need? Do we understand our bankruptcy? Jesus says, as we begin in verse 3, this promise of verse 3, that for the broken in spirit, the kingdom of heaven is, is out there, is extended as, as, a, as a reward, right? As, as a place of dwelling, as a reality for, for God's people. Verse 10, blessed are those who are persecuted for what? Righteousness sake. Right? Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness sake, for theirs is the kingdom of of heaven. And so maybe we step back and we go, okay, let's understand what it means to be persecuted for righteousness sake, as opposed to being persecuted because we're hard to deal with, right? Like that's just a side note, right? Like what is it that produces and gives way to persecution in the lives of God's people? It ought not be that we're difficult to deal with, that we're headaches, that we're annoying, that we're mean, that we're jerks. That just ought to be you know, to be cast aside. Jesus is speaking towards those who are persecuted for righteousness sake. He says, for theirs is the kingdom of, of heaven. And then we find six assurances for a people. Let's look at these together in verse four. For those who mourn, they shall what? They shall be comforted. Now, when we talk about mourning, when we understand the the mourning that Jesus is is speaking of and about here, we have to understand that it's directly connected with that which we see in verse 3. Verse 3 feeds into verse 4. We just talked about what it means to be poor in spirit, understanding spiritual bankruptcy. As we continue into verse 4, Jesus says that for those who mourn, they shall be comforted. For those who understand their bankruptcy, their sin, their rebellion, their condition in and of themselves and, and mourn that condition, we find that in Christ, comfort is extended. Okay, the byproduct of that or the other side of the coin is this, that without a mourning of sin, right, that there is no comfort to be found. That there's no comfort as it relates to our position and our relationship with God. That there's no real comfort that is extended as we relate with one another. Consider how this manifests itself in our relationship, right? If I slug Walt in the jaw, that would be rude and mean and tragic, would it not? Especially for Walt because, like, I'm packing serious heat here, okay? And I step back and I go, okay, well, I refuse to, to mourn uh, this, this situation that has played itself out as a result of the, the Georgia-Auburn game yesterday, right? There will be no comfort extended in that situation. There's no way that Walt extends out, reaches out, and goes, hey, man, like, you know what? Like, fists fly. It happens from time to time. And as a result, like, let's bring it in and let's hug this thing out, right? 
That's just not what it's going to look like. There ought to be this, this mourning that produces the comfort that one is able to experience uh, as a, a result. So let's bring it to a cosmic level. As we consider our sin, do we mourn our sin? Do we understand our sin, our condition, our behavior directed towards a holy God as an assault on his character and goodness? Do we understand that? Do we grasp that? Jesus says that when we get that, and we get this only as our eyes are opened and only as our hearts are opened, right? We, become, we come to see ourselves as we truly are. Only then is comfort available. But the assurance here is that for those who mourn, what is there? What awaits? Comfort. That there is comfort for those who, who mourn their sin, who mourn their condition. Verse 5, we're continuing on with the assurances. Blessed are the meek, Jesus says, for they shall inherit the earth. And meekness, this, this humility that results in kindness, right? Blessed are the humble, blessed are the kind, blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Verse 6, those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, what awaits? Satisfaction. Right? I can't help but consider this passage and the thirst that Jesus talks of in light of what we see from Jesus and the Samaritan woman at the well, right? In which Jesus presents this hope to her in the form of an everlasting water that eternally satisfies one's thirst. Blessed are those who hunger and, and thirst for righteousness, for satisfaction shall be found for them. Satisfaction, right? We are all hungering and we are all thirsting after something. Everyone in this room could say that, right? Whether that be status or, or wealth or praise or posture or position, whatever that is, we're hungering and we're thirsting after it. If not, and you're a college student, you got a really tough week coming up, right? Like eye on the prize, hungering and thirsting, A's, right? Or or B's, or C's, or even D's get degrees in some cases, right? And so you continue to push on. There's a hunger. There's a, there's a thirst that is present. Those things don't ultimately satisfy us, right? Like, we get that. We understand that. They're good, and you ought to study for finals, right? And, and, and we ought to work hard, like, at our jobs as God's people as a testimony to his goodness and his character and his grace. But we understand that hungering and, and thirsting that we're talking about, that Jesus is talking about here, might be satisfied in Christ and in Christ alone. And that for those who do so, there is a blessedness. Verse 7. Right, blessed are the merciful, so for they shall, Jesus says, receive mercy. Again, that this understanding of one's own need. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Now, up until this point, everything that we have talked about, if we considered in the power and the strength of ourselves, we would say, we would confess, these things are an impossibility. We don't like to mourn our condition, right? We like to polish our condition and present our own righteousness to other people for accolades, right? We don't naturally, especially towards our enemies, those who have slugged us in the jaw over the Auburn-Georgia game, tend to extend kindness, right? Mercy, humongous challenge, 
But then we get to this purity of heart. And Jesus says that for the pure in heart, there is this blessedness that results in their seeing of God. Now, if, if it has been implicit up until this point, it is certainly explicit as we come into verse 8. And that is this, that this requires a transformation, right? This requires a transformed heart. We see scripture again and again points towards the depravity of the human heart, the sinfulness of the human heart. Jeremiah Jeremiah says that the heart is wicked and it's not to be trusted, right? And so if we come into verse 8 and our hope and our righteousness is in anyone other than Christ, then we see that for the pure in heart where blessedness is found and, and seeing God is found, that we are left wanting, that we are without hope, right? You guys with me so far? Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Now let's revisit and let's consider our condition again as a result of the sin of our older brother, Adam. Because we made a statement that you may or may not affirm in the beginning. And that statement was this, that to be human is to be sinful. Now, if we say that, then we're removing our condition in and of ourselves outside of behavior. And we're talking about an existence, right? We're talking about who we are. We're talking about a DNA problem, right? We're not talking strictly behavior. Way before I slug wall, I'm a sinner, right? Like way before I, I begin to, to act out my sin upon another, like I am still a sinner, in our older brother, Adam, we find our separation. All right, Paul, under, uh, he, he lays this out really clearly. He understands this really clearly and presents it really clearly in his letter to the Romans, in which he says, hey, listen, like one man's sin has been passed down to all men, that it's the inheritance that nobody wanted, right? But it's the inheritance that we all got, in our older brother, Adam, we find our separation. We see the first rebellion from God and its consequences. In the second Adam, the, the truer, better, older brother, Jesus, we find the opportunity for restoration. We find the opportunity for blessing through the most unorthodox and unconventional of means, the cross. Right? In Christ, we see what Luther refers to as the great reversal. Right, Our position is transformed. This is what Paul talks about in Ephesians chapter 2, that we are literally trans transferred. Right, That we are brought from a kingdom of death and darkness into a kingdom of life and light. Read Ephesians chapter 2. It will wreck you and encourage you, break you down and build you up. It's insane. It all happens at one time. It throws you through a major loop the first time you read it. Our position is transformed. Right? Our, our posture is transformed. In the Sermon on the Mount, we see the outlines for us Christians living this life. And we're talking outside the Beatitudes at this point, which have shown us clearly our need for transformation. But we're talking all of the Sermon on the Mount. We're talking all of Matthew chapter 5 outlines for us what it looks like to live this life as a Christian. Let me give you a few. Forgiveness. You want to know anything about forgiveness? You want to know how God's people are to relate with one another, those who have done us wrong and those whom we have wronged? Consider Matthew chapter 5. What does it look like to live lives of generosity, 
You want to know what that looks like for God's people? Give the Sermon on the Mount a look. Look at Matthew chapter 5. Self-sacrifice. You want to know what that looks like? As we live as God's people, redeemed, made, alive, given new hearts. Man, look at Matthew chapter 5. Consider the remainder of the Sermon on the Mount and God's desire and expectation for his people. Christ lives the Sermon on the Mount, okay? Christ lives this perfectly, right? He submits himself to to daily suffering and obedience, and by faith, his righteousness is credited to you and I. Let me say this another way. I, was, I, I plugged this book in the beginning, and it would be not a so solid plug if I didn't also provide some insight into what it says over the first two days, right? So he talks about, Tripp talks about the incarnation and how that ought to inform our understanding of the daily life of Christ. We understand our struggle. We understand our plight. We understand that that waging war against sin on a daily basis, a moment-by-moment basis, is an incredible challenge and that we oftentimes succumb to it, right? We are all on board with that. We are intimately acquainted with ourselves, right? Christ endures the daily struggle. Only he doesn't succumb in the same way that you and I do. All of the commands for the life of God's people that are laid out and presented through the Sermon on the Mount and through the scriptures as a whole, Christ fulfills them all. He fulfills the law. He doesn't do away with it, right? But he he satisfies it. He fulfills it. It meets its purpose and its end in him. Now, what is the hope for all of God's people in this? Well, that the weight for obedience, right, commitment to, 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 to living out perfectly God's instruction and God's law and God's desire for his people, something that we are incapable of doing, is removed from our backs and it's placed on Christ. It's removed from our backs and it's placed on Christ so that we might gaze upon him. In faith, that we might look to the cross, that we might look to the cradle and then we go to the cross and then we go to the empty tomb and we go, man, by faith, we are redeemed. We're rescued and we're empowered and equipped to begin living the type of life that we see Jesus displaying and talking of here in the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus is the better older brother. Jesus is the better older brother. He rescues the condemned. Jesus is the better Moses who recounts the law of God to people and then fulfills it for them. Jesus shows those who follow after him what true discipleship actually looks like. And then he equips them to live through the spirit as his followers. What do we see? What do we see through the rest of this passage? Look with me at verse 12. Look with me at verse 11. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely because you follow after me. Rejoice and be glad for your reward is great in heaven for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. What is Jesus saying here? He's saying that living this life is not going to be easy. That living the Christian life is not going to be easy. That it will be, uh, it will be challenging and that you will be, he says to his people, reviled. You will be persecuted. I love what, again, Tim Keller says. Man, Keller's getting a lot of love this morning, man, but he's been wrecking me this week. If you live like Jesus... 
man, there won't be room for you in a lot of ends, right? Just to think about the Christmas narrative. It's not going to be easy. He would go on to say this as he discusses a a new perspective on the hope-filled existence which God's people possess in Christ. We are not a hopeless people, but we are a hope-filled people. Man, we light a purple candle for a reason this morning, and it is this, that we have hope in Christ. He says this, when you come to Christ, you must drop your conditions. Or you must drop your worldly expectations. You have to give up the right to say, I will obey you if. I will do this if. As soon as you say, I will obey you if, that is not obedience at all. You're saying, you are my advisor, not my Lord. I will be happy to take your recommendations, and I might even do some of them. Now, if you want Jesus with you, right? If you want the hope of the gospel, if you want the hope of Christ, you have to give up the right to self-determination. Self-denial is an act of rebellion against our late modern culture of self-assertion. But that is what we are called to. That's what we're called to, and we're called to nothing less. And so as we as we begin to wrap up our time together, let us say Let us say this, that hope, the hope that we're talking about this morning, that Christ provides, the hope that God extends is driven by faith. And faith is driven by surrender. Right? Hope is driven by faith and faith is driven by surrender. And so what are we surrendering to? What is all this surrender about? Well, we're surrendering to Christ. Right, we surrender to Christ and we surrender again every day. Right? Every day. Our our eyes open, right? And we, we paw the sleep out, and then we say, Yeah, okay, today again I surrender. That's what it looks like to live the Christian life. We look to him to, to keep us and to and to satisfy us and to sanctify us. We're confident that the work that he has begun, and it is indeed a work that he has begun, that he will surely complete it. If it rested on you and I, man, I got a house full of half-finished projects, right? Like, I mean, they're everywhere. I'm constantly reminded of my need for grace for my wife because I failed to finish a lot of projects at our house house. Man, thank goodness that the work that has begun in us does not rest solely on us, but it rests on him that he will complete it. And so we consider even the things that we talked about last week. We go back to those things again. We're back in Mark 11. You guys didn't even know, right? We found our way back to to Mark 11, right? We, We submit ourselves to the authority of the scriptures, right? We abide in God's word. We gather among his people. We seek to live missional lives and offer our worship, our praise to him, through him. And it is pleasing to God. And so what do we do? What do we do, right? Here we go. We hope in Christ. We hope in Christ. We hope in Christ daily to, to save us and to, and to keep us, right? To, to, to verses 21 through 26, fight against anger. These are passages that we didn't cover this morning, but they're right there in, in Matthew chapter 5. To verses 27 and 30, fight lust. To verses 43 and 48, love our enemies. We look to Christ, our hope, for strength, for 
this life. We gaze with amazement upon the cross. We're about to go to the Lord's table, man, and we're going to take again of the Lord's Supper as we do every week. And we do so purposefully every week because we are reminded yet again as we take the bread and we dip it into the bowl. We are reminded of the broken body and the shed blood of Jesus that saves us, that keeps us, that sustains us, that sanctifies us. Our hearts are naturally, due to our condition and our inability, without hope. At the cross, however, and through the resurrection, we observe certain hope for salvation and now daily life. Our hope is Jesus, right? If Christmas is a sentimental tradition for you, if you're here this morning and it's all about Black Friday, putting the Christmas tree up and hanging Christmas ornaments and singing songs and drinking hot chocolate and doing the Christmas gift things and maybe like trains around the tree, if you're a train around the tree person, like that's, I commend you, right? That's next level commitment to the Christmas season. If that's all the Christmas is, then you're on your own. Right? You're on your own. But if everything that we're talking about here this morning and everything that Jesus says is true, man, then the hope is that we can be saved by grace. And it's a hope that we have confidence in. It's not something we hope for like man, new Beats headphones for Christmas. Right? But it's a, it's a hope of assurance. Right? We can be confident in what the Lord is doing. We don't have to, to, to hunger for the things of this world, but we look to Christ, right? So if we're struggling, hungering for the things of this world, man, as we approach the table this morning, let us do so with repentant hearts, saying, man, satisfy my hunger and my thirst in a way that only you can, to where I don't even, I don't even recognize the things that have passed away, for the new is so good. If you're struggling to extend kindness, man, look to Christ, Right To extend mercy, to be merciful, look to Christ, to make peace and not warm and look to Christ, to endure persecution as a disciple, look to Christ. If you're struggling to, to love your enemies, hey, welcome to the club. Welcome to the club. Let us corporately, as God's people, look to Christ who loved us, who sought us, and who bought us as God's enemies and then transforms our hearts that we might gather together in scenes like this, worshiping him with the hope of gathering together one day anew with him. Let's consider all those things. Just consider all those things as we go to the table this morning, right? No small task. Let's do that.